travellers and temporary non-travellers. Welcome to another edition in our podcast, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. And today we're talking about school journeys. Now, that's anything from the amazing school trip that your educational establishment organised to, well, the business of getting to school, whether that was um, in some way exotic or simply humdrum. Well, when I went to primary school, I don't think I can really even call it a journey because we lived three doors away from the school gate and I suppose the only thing I did ever think about was that our very beautiful cat Dizzy used to follow me to the school gate and on a very good day would be there waiting when I came back. And then when I went to secondary school... I was rather looking forward to having proper journeys, maybe buses and adventures. But uh, as it turned out, my mum moved house. So instead of it being a a 30-second walk, it was, I think, all all of five minutes. And the cat didn't go either. (laughs) More school journeys from our listeners later on. I should say the reason that I thought it was a good idea to do this particular subject now was that when the lockdown is lifted it seems very likely that schools will be amongst the first things to reopen and I have a feeling that the the humble journey to school will suddenly take on a new and fresh feel and maybe it's a good time to uh, to have a look at it with fresh eyes. And also to look at our own with in the rear view mirror um, in both your case and mine, a rather large number of um, years ago. These days, of course, you, you see people turning up in four by fours being dropped off at the school gates. Um, I'm very glad that uh, my first journey, which I dimly remember, bizarrely, age four, because I used to uh, accompany my lovely twin sisters who were five to school. And then I wonder back my myself um, through the lanes of Crawley Newtown, past housing estates, over meadows, which are now sadly uh, beneath the uh, A23. And I must say it was a real awakening. It felt as though I was on a long march of Maoist proportions, although when I recently did the same journey again, it took about 10 minutes or so. Um, And yours? Well, my formative school journeys are the ones that I remember best actually happened rather later on when I went to secondary school. I was uh, I was sent, I must say much against my will, to a rather distant grammar school. Um, how, how, how can, can you describe distant? Um, two miles? 200 miles? It, I think it was about 10 miles or so and could involve two bus journeys and a reasonably decent walk. Or, as I got a bit older, a rather thrilling bicycle ride through some country lanes and then down a absolutely vicious hill called Ray Lane, W-R-A-Y, which descended uh, from a ridge of the North Downs down into Reigate, where my grammar school was. And uh, I used to quite often go on this, I suppose it was a seven-mile bicycle trip with my friend Bill Reardon who lived uh, just down the road from me and we used to compete to see who could get down this um, this terrifying lane fastest therefore with least use of the brakes and I should say there was hardly room for a car to go up or down it and the thought of actually managing to get a car and a bike <laughs> through at the same time was uh, virtually impossible. 
Um, can I just ask, what was the nature of what I think we must these days call your personal protective equipment? I certainly don't think um, cycle helmets, uh, if they had been invented, had uh, reached uh, Coulsdon, where I lived on the southern outskirts of uh, London. Uh, I think probably my school cap um, was the only thing which had to be worn uh, under threat of a good caning from the headmaster at all times, even when descending incredibly uh, dangerous winding lanes. That sounds, um, I mean, on the scale of uh, great risk, I'm genuinely surprised and of course delighted that you survived yeah well so am i actually (laughs) and um but in a way that wasn't the most interesting thing because um when i became a bit older i started to uh leave my bicycle at home uh, and hitchhike again through the same country lanes and this added a whole new element of of thrill and indeed risk because obviously the worst thing that could possibly happen at a traditional grammar school was to be late. (laughs) I mean, it didn't really matter how good or bad you were at the uh, actual lessons, but getting there uh, five minutes after the bell had rung was, was, it was again, something, you know, that, that was immediately punishable with detentions and lines. And- but but um, how often did it, did it fail? Because um, I know from my own experience that itching against a deadline is uh, stressful and um, not 100% reliable. Well, I suppose like... Um, like many um, an inveterate traveller, I've managed to airbrush from my memory the times when it all went terribly wrong. But in the main, I did get lifts and I got lifts from two or three regular and incredibly nice people. Uh, one of whom I remember very fondly, although I never uh, got to know his name. I imagine it was Mr Smith. He was the bank manager of a, a branch, I don't know which one, in Reigate, where my school was. And he gave me innumerable lifts in his rather interesting car, which was uh, it was the upgraded version of uh, the very uh, mundane Standard 8. But this was called a Standard Pennant. Uh, I think it must have had a little flag on it somewhere, but it had it had very, very restrained go faster stripes uh, and and little fins at the back, which the Standard model didn't have. And uh, anyway, Mr. Smith, as I will call him, used to stop as soon as he saw me and uh, he gave me a lift to school and I don't really remember talking about anything very much other than lunch Um, and he had his packed by his wife on the back seat of his car alongside his umbrella which he he always had with him as befits um, a proper careful bank manager and he always asked me about my school lunch and school lunches which were in the main, unspeakable and almost inedible. Uh, they were those um, bits of liver with the, with the sort of tubes still in them, which, had I known about vegetarianism in those days, would have converted me to vegetarian, sort of on the spot. Uh, anyway, many, many lifts I had with him, and uh, I got to enjoy the thought of hitchhiking, and it set me up for, well, I suppose, a career in that, in that form of travel. Uh, well, that, that's a very charming story, but but I would actually classify that um, as a kind of 
very primitive um, lift sharing, car sharing. Um, so therefore, you were not just um, uh, saving the bus fare and getting to uh, school in some sort of comfort. You were also a um, transportation revolutionary, Mick. How about that? Do you know, no one's ever called me that before, but um, I'm suitably chuffed. Thank you. Oh, well, you're, you're very welcome. And what a, what a great and exciting journey. Um, and of course, we'd love to hear from you um, about your particularly challenging or interesting um, uh, journey to school, particularly if it involved hitchhiking or cycling down um, precipitous uh, slopes with, without um, uh, a bike helmet or indeed um, brakes. So uh, do keep in touch with us. We'd love to hear your stories. And of course, um, you can just send us um, uh, words or you can send us audio. We love that too. Anchor.fm slash you should have been there without any spaces between the words. Well, Simon, I hope that that has triggered some very evocative memories for you. It certainly does, Mick. Um, it, it was uh, late in the 20th century when you were a producer for the BBC. I was um, by then uh, working at, at the Independent and we decided to go and look for Vilka Bamba, um, trying to find where the uh, Inca Empire had reached its uh, its final um, location um, before it crumbled beneath the conquistadores. Uh, needless to say, it was a long, difficult and arduous journey. Um, and, and yet, along the way, we discovered... <laughs> In the extremely challenging Andean highlands, uh, we discovered uh, patches of normal life. I nearly lost it going over that last river crossing. But here we are at Vista Alegre. And what a beautiful view. They're playing football. For there to be sufficient population and flat ground to play football is quite remarkable. There's the uh, pavilion such as it is, a little wooden shed. And here it comes, man. Oh, oh! Get it, Mick, go on. Buenas tardes, ¿qué tal? The goalkeeper at our end neglected his defensive duties for a while to introduce himself. He was Alvaro, the teacher, and the hut that we'd taken to be the pavilion was in fact his school, which is where we were invited to spend the night. I don't remember that night on the classroom floor being the most comfortable I've ever had in my life, but I do remember that... Um, uh, outside the door, I'm not sure there was a door actually, possibly just a, um, a sort of gap uh, in the walls, um, you could see um, fireflies dancing around in the undergrowth uh, and then outside was this roaring Andean river thundering down a canyon and it was all very wonderful. But what I hadn't really thought about at the time was that this was a functioning school and I have looked it up now, Vista Alegre School, it's called... Escuela School, number 501421. It still exists and it currently has 13 children and two teachers. Uh, and they, the children span the age group uh, 
five to fifteen, I think. And like sixty percent of schools in Peru, it is rural, and some of these are so difficult for um, the children to get to. I don't know if you remember, but when we were on our way from that school towards the ruins of uh, Vilcabamba, at some sort of unlikely part in the trail where you couldn't really feel yourself any more deeply in the uh, cloud forest. We were passed by uh, children running barefoot, uh, holding their books in their hand on their way to that school. And uh, we didn't actually think uh, at the time of asking them where they'd actually come from. But uh, according to some documents I have uh, read recently, children are still in Peru uh, walking for up to eight hours a day there and back to um, to get to their schools, including some in this particular zone. So, I mean, it really is an incredible undertaking, isn't it? And, and luckily, with the uh, living in the 21st century, we can now l- search online for um, 25 of the most dangerous and unusual journeys to school in the world and realise that actually um, uh, uh, four hours to school, four hours back isn't, um, if it's a, a longer reasonable path isn't as bad as some of the journeys um this uh, the top of the uh, uh, 25 i think is uh, something called a five-hour journey into the mountains on a one foot wide path to the most remote school in the world in china and uh it, that, that, the, it, it's a precipitous cliff um, looking at the surroundings it must be well a, a thousand feet above uh, a, above the valley floor and there they are trudging to school um rather like your journey um not being completely uh unaware of the uh high level of risk um as similar similar journeys um uh Elsewhere in China, here we have school children climbing on unsecured wooden ladders. Oh, yes, they are. This is uh, uh, climbing with with their satchels, um, trying to get to the top of uh, a a pretty sheer cliff face. Um, Also in Zanskar, in the Indian Himalayas, just across the border there, uh, children scampering across an ice field to get to school and then a favorite of ours because we found a few of these in um, in our journeys a, um, a a kind of rudimentary suspension bridge of which uh, there are plenty in various um, uh, parts of the world this particular one is Lebak in Indonesia and of course the thing about a rudimentary suspension bridge is that they are quite prone to collapse and if one side goes well then you end up um, going to school by by kind of edging along, hanging on to this um, very, very precarious uh, 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 rope while the river is roaring beneath you, um, encouraging you to, to get there. What a world we, um, uh, we, we have managed to evade by um, being brought up in the, um, in the home counties. And his, his, uh, as many others, overcrowded tuk-tuks, of course, um, scrambling across uh, a, a, a lovely one, lovely picture, um, schoolgirls walking across a plank of the wall of the 16th century Gaul fort in in Sri Lanka. So you might want to search for that. Of course, like um, everything on the internet, um, its veracity I cannot absolutely vouch for. Well, it is on a site called uh, 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 www.com 
boredpanda.com slash dangerous journey to school. Well, I'll put it on our uh, website and uh, I must agree. You can't vouch for uh, the authenticity of this, but the pictures are so realistic and I suppose sort of horrifying, really, uh, and that I'm actually quite glad I'm uh, sitting down while I'm looking at them. Um, But, you know... um, As preparation for this podcast, we have been gathering um, a few experiences from our nearest and uh, dearest uh, and their friends and uh, even a school journey to secondary school in uh, South London uh, can have its um, dangers. One of the ones that was probably the most frightening was when me and a group of my friends who were all young, naughty lads, probably we were about 12, 13, used to get the bus up the hill and they would decide to go through their lunchboxes at 8.30am and decide what they were going to throw out the window at all the business men and women at Putney Station. And one day, one of them threw a carton of milk out and went all over a man in his suit and he actually got managed to chase the bus, got on, a, on the bus and shouted at all of us, demanding for our full name. So that was quite scary. Did anything happen? Did anything come of that? I don't think so. I mean, he was saying he was going to get everyone excluded, but I don't think he really knew who had done it. So there was enough kids on the bus and so he didn't know who the who the perpetrators were luckily i often would cycle cycle across the common so tooting Beck common to um my school which is in in Thursdown in tooting and uh that was usually fine in the summer months but then as soon as it hit winter time when you left school it was about four o'clock it was pitch black and cycling across some patches of the the common uh had had an air of risk about them and i remember probably when i was in year year eight so what like 14 and probably had the the body the body size of a 10 year old still and uh i was uh, cycling back and a, a group of guys were jogging towards me and i thought quite kind of inconspicuously and until they really started sprinting uh and uh stopped me on my bike uh asked, uh, and and mugged me at and at what I thought was, I was quite scared at the time that it was at, at gunpoint, but actually it was at, at staple gunpoint. Um, I did feel kind of cold metal on my forehead at one point or, or on my temple, which was a very terrifying experience. But I, I don't know, I don't imagine a staple would have done that much damage. But uh, in the end, they didn't even take my bike. They took what was in my blazer, which was a curly-whirly chocolate bar and uh, and my school lunch card, which I think had about £2 on it, and you could only use it in my school dinner area. So I don't think it was a particularly lucrative bit of um, mugging from them. OK, I'll see your curly-whirly, and I will offer you, um, again, from this uh, very well-illustrated site, a 125-mile journey to a boarding school through the mountains in Pili in China and this depicts a group of school children who are having to be helped by adults along an almost impossible uh, cliff face Um, uh, and uh, this apparently is how they get to their boarding school I'm not surprised it's a boarding school I wouldn't fancy making that journey back but it does make me think that um, actually that sort of uh, journey amounts much more to a, a, a school trip, the sorts of things that for educational purposes are still being organised and they seem to be getting more and more exotic. Um, when I cast around a few friends, the most uh, uh, extreme that their uh, children uh, had, had enjoyed was um, one to the 
Isle of Youth, the Isla de la Juventud in um, in uh, Cuba, which um, I know from experience, um, getting to that particular island is, is is pretty tricky on a on an ecology field trip. Um, what what was your most uh, most exotic uh, uh, school trip, Mick? That's very easy to answer because I can only remember one school trip. Uh, There might have been others, but they certainly uh, didn't leave any mark on me. Um, Well, we went one day um, with our very theatrical uh, Latin teacher, Mr. Louis, um, who declaimed most of the Latin classes as though he were Cicero, um, but in a kind of quite interesting way, I must say. Uh, He took us to Verulamium. And if you don't know where that is, it's also known as St Albans, north of London. So we had the thrill of a coach trip across London, and then we got to uh, the Roman site. And the only thing I can remember about it, but I do still remember it, was being amazed by the fact that the Roman villa that we were shown by Mr Louis actually had underfloor central heating Um, and (laughs) given that our heating at home was uh, extremely primitive based on uh, a solid fuel boiler which often ran out of uh, fuel and I wondered whether we'd um, made all that much progress in the several centuries since Verulamium was built. Well I I must say um, what did the Romans ever do for Surrey um, is the question that uh, comes to mind but I didn't have many school trips um, organised by the school at least. The one which is burnt into my memory was uh, in about 1973. Now, bear in mind that the school I went to, Thomas Bennett in Crawley, um, had a couple of um, notable facts. It was the largest school in Britain. Two and a half thousand pupils it peaked at, uh, probably around about 1973. But it was also incredibly left-wing. And I remember a few months after this trip, um, we were told um, very solemnly in the... Um, in the sociology lessons, yes, we did have them, that all the conditions for revolution had now been met, thanks to the three-day week and the miners' strike. Anyway, before that, um, they were preparing us for all the conditions for revolution having been met by taking us to two places on the same dire coach trip. Now, um, we are talking early 70s here, the motorway network did not exist. They took us first to Dagenham, to the Ford factory to see people being exploited by uh, capitalism. And then they took us to the hub of capitalism, the stock exchange in the city of London. And the lesson we had to get was all those very hardworking men, as they invariably were, in Ford are being exploited by all these uh, money men um, in the stock exchange. And here you are, kids. It, you now have to fight fight for um, a future of uh, egalitarianism. Um, and uh, I don't think anybody was particularly convinced. And I do remember the stock exchange actually giving us things like tea and biscuits, which was more than we got at Ford's. So I, I put a bit of a shout out to um, on Twitter um, and um, uh, I got this um, uh, message back from um, Lynette, who'd also been to Dagenham. God, I remember Ford's. They were very concerned us girls aged 12 might hear rude words from the workforce. Apparently it was okay for the boys to hear them. 
Lots of black workers. Number of black pupils at our school of 1,500 was two. This was 1964. And just six years after that, Carol found herself um, on Merseyside. A trip to Liverpool in 1970, including the docks. Health and safety would not have approved at gangs of 13-year-olds running rampant. Then onto the ferry, two girls got stuck in the loo on board. Must have crossed the Mersey six times before anyone realised they were missing. Now, Mick, before we go, I've been fretting about um, your first post-school trip, um, or your first trip abroad anyway, in the company of Gerald Bernstein. I think when we were last... Uh, talking. You were in San Sebastián in northern Spain uh, with Gerald, with the Guardia Civil who just turned up, um, very angry uh, Spanish policeman, and with a Frenchman who got a gun? Yeah, in fact there were two Frenchmen, but only one gun. Anyway, this is how things continued. Despite our hazy notion of Spanish current affairs, Gerald and I both knew that civil guards were key enforcers of General Franco's repressive politics, with a reputation for being anything but civil. We got clumsily to our feet and Gerald, still caught up in his sleeping bag, fell down again. They laughed, in a way I interpreted as cruel, but at least it helped to establish some kind of human connection. I wondered if we were about to be arrested for sleeping on the beach, which did in fact turn out to be illegal. But instead, one of the pair said, Mire, look, and pointed towards the sea. The water, which had been 50 metres away when we passed out from the effects of the wine, was now just a couple of body lengths from us. I think that both Gerald and I had somehow assumed that Spain being a Mediterranean country, would have coasts that were lapped by Mediterranean-style tideless seas. However, the north coast, which is where we were, faces the Bay of Biscay and is battered by the extremely tidal Atlantic. So the civil guards, acting against type and very civilly, had just saved us from a possible watery grave. But... Danger had not yet been averted. Before we could thank them, the pair spotted our French companions who were asleep a bit higher up the beach and began to plod through the sand towards them. I saw the gun, even heard the shots and began to imagine the consequences. The guardia must be stopped, so I had to summon up my O-level Spanish. No, por favor, yo, while gesticulating wildly towards the French lads still amazingly asleep in an attempt to convey the idea that I would wake them up so the policeman didn't really need to bother. And amazingly, it worked. And the civil guards nodded, turned on their heels and trudged back the way they had come, leaving a parallel trail of deep boot prints in the sand. Mick, that's tremendous. So this is your diary from uh, your contemporaneous diary, which I think if there are Netflix executives wondering where to spend their next um, hundred million dollars, it surely has to be on that um, that cliffhanger there. What an extraordinary uh, turnabout. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. That uh, was very much of its time. Thank you very much. And uh, and, and indeed, um, uh, Mr. and uh, Mrs. and Ms. Netflix, uh, you know where to find me, particularly for the next few weeks. 
<laughs> um, but look, we are um, going to be here next week um, and uh, often for many, many weeks after that as well. Um, just a point, if you do want to nominate, please, your favourite uh, travel companion, uh, we would love to hear who that would be. And we also adore your travel stories about when you tell us you should have been there. Do get in touch with us at anchor.fm slash you should have been there. That's without any spaces between the words. We'd like to thank today's contributors, Steph, Camilla, Silas, Lynette, Carol, Daisy and Poppy. And until next week, it's goodbye from me, Mick Webb. And from me, Simon Calder, goodbye. Goodbye.